Well, good morning. Thanks for checking out our theological equipping class. This semester, we've been talking about apologetics, which means defending the faith. And uh, we've been talking about related issues, things like absolute uh, truth and evolution and logical fallacies, which are all assumed under the banner of what's called worldview, the way that we see and relate to life and truth and so forth. And this morning, we want to continue to look at uh, the foundations and implications of our worldview uh, by talking about the subject of world religions. In subsequent weeks, we're going to examine each of the most common non-Christian world religions. But this week, we want to really give a general preview or kind of an overview on the topic of world religions. And we'll do so by asking a few questions. Number one, why should we study world religions? Second, What even is religion? Third, who is religious? Fourth, how many religions are there? And fifth, what makes Christianity distinct amongst all the other uh, religions? So the first question we want to to ask and uh, and answer is why should we study world religions? And I want to do so by reading a passage from Acts 17. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there or if you want to look on the notes, Acts 17, 22 through 31 says this. So Paul... Standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything." Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So this is taking place in Athens, not East Texas, but Athens, Greece. And the Apostle Paul is standing on the Areopagus, which is a rock uh, rock outcropping across from the Acropolis uh, there in Athens. Uh, And this is the place where important matters were discussed and uh, and decided and debated. So Paul stands there and he gives this uh, brief little sermon. And notice where he begins there. He says, I perceive that you are very religious. So how does he know that? Well, he's been walking around. He's observed their objects of worship. He's seen their idols Imagine that someone came to McKinney uh, today and drove up and down Virginia Parkway. They would come to the same conclusion. We are very religious. There's a church on every corner and an ichthus on every car. But not only did Paul observe their objects of worship, he's also been reading their literature. Notice how he quotes uh, even from some of their own poets. So why? Why was it that Paul was observing the culture and studying the cultural artifacts like altars and pagan literature? We did so in order to find some common ground. Now, this is a common tactic 
uh, in religious studies today to look at Christianity and Hinduism and Islam and Judaism and the cults and and to find all of the commonalities, all the similarities, to, to uphold all of these things as being similar between all the various religions as evidence that we're all the same. We all simply promote the universal fatherhood of God, the universal brotherhood of man, as liberal theologian Adolf von Harnack said. But notice that isn't what Paul's doing here. It isn't what he's doing at all. In fact, it's the very opposite of what he's doing. He's looking for common ground, but not in the modern pluralistic sense of assuming that all religions are the same. Instead, he does so precisely to make the point that not all religions are the same. Look back at the passage where Paul says, we ought not to think of God in some ways, and we should think of him in other ways. By the way, those ways that we are not to think of him are the very ways that your common run-of-the-mill Athenian would have thought of a divine being. So Paul is basically saying, forget just about everything you think you know about God. You're wrong in thinking of God the way that you tend to think of him. In fact, he calls such thinking ignorance. That isn't very politically correct. If Paul were giving this sermon today, even in some churches today, he would be arrested by the PC police. But he keeps going by saying that God commands uh, us to think of him rightly. So what shall we do? God commands us to think rightly, but we think of him wrongly. So he says we are to repent. Why do we need to repent? Because we have thought of him wrongly and worshiped him wrongly. Paul doesn't look at the Athenians and pat them on the shoulder for their idols and their literature and say, good job. He says, repent because judgment is coming and God will judge. Judge what? Repent of what? Your religion, your worship of idols, your suppression of the truth of God's sovereignty and his grace and his glory. In other words, your worship is blasphemy. So as much as we might in some uh, sense talk about shared similarities between the various religions of the world, it is the distinctiveness of Christianity that is emphasized. It's true that there are similarities between all religions if you look hard enough, but what does that actually mean? Just look around your room right now. Actually look around your room right now. Consider the two most dissimilar things that you can think of in that room. And I guarantee you can find at least some similarities. They both exist. They're both visible, you own them, whatever it might be. You can find similarities between any two things, but that doesn't mean that they're actually all that similar. So the point isn't that all religions are the same. The point is, in fact, the exact opposite, that there is something in the nature of the resurrection that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. We'll get to that at the end. But from this little exercise, we do see that there is a value in learning about world religions. That's what Paul's doing. Paul is observing their objects of worship. He's reading their literature. Why? In order to more faithfully have inroads or, or bridges to jump off of into what is dissimilar and distinct in regards to the gospel. So with that in mind, we wanna embark on the next few weeks of studying various world religions because it's helpful to at least have some foundational understanding of what Islam teaches as you have lunch with your Muslim coworker. It's beneficial to, uh, to know at least something about Hinduism as you talk to your Hindu neighbor. Now, I'm not saying that you need a PhD in religious studies or in Islam. More than you need to know what Muslims or Mormons or Hindus believe, you need to know what Christians believe as a Christian. So don't neglect the opportunity to learn what your neighbor believes, but also don't fall victim to the fallacy that you can only evangelize if you know every uh, intricacy and detail Speaking, though, of knowing what your neighbor believes, 
Uh, I just want to mention this tendency that we have to reduce people uh, to some lowest common denominator, and that's going to be unhelpful to us in missions and evangelism. By that, I mean that we can't assume that every worshiper of a particular religion adheres to every aspect of that religion's orthodoxy. For, ex- uh, for example, there's a difference between saying this is what Islam teaches in general and this is what this particular Muslim friend of mine believes. Let me give you an illustration of this. A few years back, I was uh, blessed to get to go on a trip to the Vatican uh, and we had a tour guide and she was talking about Roman Catholicism and the importance of dogmas. Uh, and dogmas are doctrines that are beyond dispute because the magisterium, the official teaching capacity of the church, has said that this particular b- uh, belief is binding on all Catholics. There's no debate, there's no dispute, there's no discussion whatsoever. It is uh, binding. So this tour guide's talking about this. She doesn't realize I'm a pastor who actually cares about these kinds of things. And so eventually I ask her, are there any dogmas that you disagree with? And she says, yeah, there's a couple. So I ask her, well, what do you do in those instances? And she said, well, I just ignore those. In case you didn't catch that, What she just said doesn't actually make sense. Here is a doctrine which is by definition beyond dispute and yet she disputes it. These are doctrines within the Roman Catholic Church that they officially say that you must believe to be Catholic and yet she's Catholic and she doesn't believe it. Well, the same thing is true of your Hindu or your Buddhist or your Mormon or your Muslim friend. In fact, it's true of Protestants as well as Catholics. Just think about how hard it would be to answer the question, what do Christians believe? There's certainly a few essentials, Trinity, hypostatic union, resurrection of Christ, and so forth. But what do Christians believe about baptism? Well, the Bible teaches that only believers should be baptized, but lots of actual regenerate Christians believe that infants should be baptized. They're wrong on that. We've taught on that, but they're still Christians. What does the Bible teach about predestination? A a whole lot of actual Christians uh, don't believe what the Bible says about that, but they're still Christians and so forth. My point is that while you might be able to assume a few fundamentals, most people actually have a complex web of more or less consistent and inconsistent beliefs. So if you want to engage your Muslim neighbor, you shouldn't just assume that you know what he believes because you've read the Quran. You need to know not just what Islam teaches, but what that actual neighbor believes. And that only comes through conversation and relationship as you love your neighbor. But in general, you should have some understanding of other religions for a couple of reasons. For polemical reasons, as we seek to defend Christianity from other uh, uh, belief systems, and then also for missional purposes as we desire to make disciples of our unbelieving friends. All right, what is a religion? We're talking about world religions. We're gonna be doing so for the next two months. So what is a uh, religion? Will you ever have a word that you can use in a sentence but you really would struggle to define. That's kind of like the word religion. Trying to find a really good definition can actually be pretty difficult. As much as we might want to stress the similar characteristics between all religions, just trying to find a one-size-fits-all definition will show you how much diversity actually exists in regards to different world religions. For instance, uh, let's imagine that we want to start kind of building a baseline definition. And we want to start with the idea that religion is about the worship of a particular God. Well, that sounds good, but then you've already excluded the polytheist who believes in multiple gods. You've even excluded a number of non-theistic religions like some forms of Buddhism. 
So then you might say, okay, well, let's discard that uh, attribute of all religions. And let's say that religion is a way of relating to the supernatural. The problem with that is that some religions don't believe in the supernatural. Some uh, religions are very naturalistic. What about a belief in life after death? death? Nope, that doesn't work either. Some religions don't have that. What about a belief in morality? Well, some religions are relatively amoral, not just immoral, but amoral. They, they don't really have a, a moral sort of characteristic. So maybe you would be tempted to say, well, I can't define it, but I, I certainly know it when I see it. The problem with that is that most of us wouldn't actually recognize a number of, uh, of worldviews like secular humanism as a religion. And yet it certainly presents itself as that. It directs its proponents toward a particular purpose and worship. Even that which is anti-religion is actually religious. By the way, the next time someone tells you that all religions are the same, I think you should just ask them, well, can you define the word religion? The very fact that it's so difficult to define proves the overwhelming diversity that exists between the religions of the world. It's kind of like saying all living things are the same. Oh yeah, so birds and fish and people and dogs and plants and viruses and bacteria, all of those are the exact same. That's like saying that all religions are the same. So my point is that any definition is difficult and any definition is going to have some sort of problem, especially the more detailed you try to get. But let me, let me give you just a few definitions just to give you a general idea of what's uh, out there. This is, uh, this is by Winfred uh, Cordon, and uh, that definition is a system that a religion is a system of beliefs and practices that provides value to give life meaning and coherence by directing a person toward transcendence. I think that's a pretty good definition, although it is perhaps a bit confusing because some traditions are not about transcendence. They're also about, uh, they're, they're more than that. They're about imminence. But I think that's a pretty good definition. Or this next one, I don't know where I actually found this, so I don't have, uh, you know, whoever actually said this. Uh, sorry, I can't quote you. But uh, a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and how we spend our time. A set of beliefs that, uh, that explain what life is all about, who we are, and how we should spend our time. What do these first two definitions have in common? Well, it, there's something about trying to figure out life. And, and they both talk about practices, how we spend our time. They both concern people, who we are. They both direct us towards some goal, whether that is figuring out what life is all about or transcendence or whatever it might be. Here's another attempt at a definition from that ultimate library of semi-helpful things, Wikipedia, which says religion is a social cultural system of designated behaviors and practices, morals, worldviews, texts, Sanctified places, prophecies, ethics, or organizations that relates humanity to supernatural, transcendental, or spiritual elements. However, there is no scholarly consensus over what precisely constitutes a religion. I like that last line. There is no scholarly consensus over what precisely constitutes a religion. So that makes just about any sort of religion, uh, I'm sorry, of, of any definition difficult. That said, there are these universal, common questions that just about all religions attempt to answer. Questions such as, why are we here? Who or what made everything? Are people different from animals? What happens to us when we die? What is right and wrong? How do we know right from wrong? Is there any cure for what is wrong? Every religion or every worldview 
has answers to those because religion is basically an outworking of our worldview, a, a way of relating to or seeing or understanding the world. So every religion represents a worldview that seeks to answer those questions in some sort of way, as does every individual person, which leads us to the next question, who is religious? Who is religious? Well, we just considered a bunch of questions that in some sense all people ask. And, then, and, and in this sense, we might say that everyone is religious. In fact, we might say that mankind is incurably religious. We can't help it. This is part of what it means that God has wired certain aspects of his law on our hearts. Think back to the definition we considered above that said that religion is a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about and who we are and how we should spend our time. Who doesn't have that? Is there a single person on this earth that doesn't have certain thoughts and beliefs related to who they are and why they're here? Of course not. Even the man who says there is no God thus says something about God. Even the person who says that there is no rhyme or reason to life thus says something about the purpose of life. We can't help it. We're all religious, every single one of us. Besides, God created us to worship. We can't help that. We can choose which idol we're going to worship, Baal, or, or Thor, or Krishna, or Allah, or money, or sex, or power, whatever, but we can't just choose to turn worship off. It's hardwired into our very existence, which, which is why the Bible says to have no other gods but Yahweh, the triune God. We will have a God. That much is undeniable. That much is certain. That much is inevitable. We will worship. We can't help it. We will all serve some king, either King Jesus or some lesser pretender to the throne, you can be ruled by the true king or a pseudo-king, but everyone is ruled by someone or something. Tim Keller says this, everyone is religious. Every religion points to something that is ultimate. Your religion points to what really most matters to you. Even if you just live for yourself and you say the only thing that matters to me is that I'm free to choose what I want to do with my life, then your freedom now is the ultimate thing. Your freedom is in a sense your God it's what you put your faith in and your hope in, as well as your own competence to make decisions about how to live life. So if you're living for your own freedom or if you're living for your family or you're living for your nation or you're living for God or you're living for a certain kind of God, that affects the way in which you live. Everybody has to serve something as their ultimate hope and meaning in life. Therefore, everyone is religious. Now, it's certainly true. Many people would cringe at being called religious. In particular, those who would identify as atheists or agnostics would, uh, would object to, to wearing the religious hat. But we already saw all people have a worldview. All people answer foundational religious questions, even if they don't like the term religious. So I think that those who deny the term just evidence that they misunderstand the meaning of the word. That makes sense since we've just said that even scholars can't define the terms. They don't recognize that their worldview is religious. They, they prefer to call it something other than a religion. Now, Zach might go into a, a bit more in depth on this uh, next week as we consider uh, the religion of atheism or secular humanism. But let me briefly demonstrate this point that even the so-called non-religious atheist is actually and inevitably religious. Imagine that every religion has certain distinct attributes. Imagine that every religion has a collection of sacred scriptures or sacred writings. Imagine that every religion has sacred teachers or, or gurus. 
Uh, imagine that every religion has certain traditions and certain commandments and a, a, a distinct understanding of what evil is or sin is or what's wrong with the world and a certain view of salvation or redemption from that evil, how what is wrong can be made right. You certainly see how Christianity has all of those. We have scripture, we have teachers, we have traditions, we have commands, we have an understanding of sin and salvation. But what about atheism? What about secular humanism? They don't want to be called religious, but what about those? Do they have all of these characteristics of religions? Do they have sacred writings? Of course they do. They have the writings of Derrida or Nietzsche or Marx or the new atheists like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris. What about gurus or teachers? Well, yeah, any of the aforementioned or others like them. What about traditions? Certainly they have traditions. Dismantling traditional Christian structures in Western society, promoting secular education or feminism or existentialism or whatever it might be. Do they have certain inherent commandments? Of course they do. Thou shalt provide abortion on demand. Thou shalt promote LGBTQ rights. Thou shalt protect thine environment. Thou shalt vote for this particular uh, political party and so forth. What about a particular conception of sin? Well, of course, they have a conception of sin. Anything that smacks of Christianity is sin. Any forms of exclusivism or intolerance besides their own exclusivism or intolerance. What about salvation? Well, they have a conception of that. Human flourishing, education, reversal of power structures, whatever it might be. So even the atheist, even the agnostic, even the secular humanist who would say, I'm not religious, has all the foundational attributes of religion. So what's the result? Well, you meet a staunch atheist and they might say, I'm not religious. I don't recognize that. I don't agree with that. I'm an atheist. I'm the opposite. I'm anti-religion. But then what do they say? I realized the truth about the vanity and futility of all religion five years ago. I love to tell you my story of deconverting from Christianity because I read this book by this intellectual that was really helpful to me in understanding reality and what life is actually all about. You should read it. Then you should come hang out with my buddies as we talk about how silly organized religion is. You should come check it out this week. So in essence, they have a conversion They have a testimony about that conversion. They're proselytizing, they're evangelizing. They have sacred books, they have teachers. They have a little little ecclesia, a gathering or assembly of like-minded friends or brothers or sisters. All of that should sound vaguely familiar to you. Why? Because again, man is incurably religious. Even in rejecting religion, we actually affirm our commitment to religion. We simply trade one for another. The enemy is crafty, but he's not creative. He doesn't create, he simply corrupts what God has already created. So as a result, every culture, no matter the geographic or chronological location, has religion embedded into it. Sometimes that religion within a culture is somewhat monolithic and every citizen within that culture shares a common worldview. But as more and more cultures collide with modern migration and so forth, we see cultures interwoven with various strands of different religious cultures embedded within. So let's take McKinney, a suburb in North Texas, the buckle of the Bible belt. You would think that McKinney would be overly evangelical, but that's actually not the case. Within a few miles just of my house, kind of in the center of McKinney, there are not only like 731 churches, but there's at least two mosques that I know of, 
one Hindu temple that I know of, three places of Mormon worship, two Jehovah's Witnesses kingdom halls. Did you know that less than one quarter of all McKinney residents are evangelical Protestants? Did you know that less than half of all residents in McKinney formally identify as Christian in any sense of the term, much less evangelical Protestant? Think about that. Of your two neighbors, statistically speaking, it is likely that one of them doesn't even consider themselves a Christian. That's not even taking into account whether or not those who consider themselves Christian are actually regenerate. Statistically speaking, one of your two neighbors on either side of you doesn't even consider themselves to be a Christian. So the harvest is plentiful. You don't have to move to Bangladesh to share the gospel with the unchurched or the de-churched. You just have to walk across the street or stop by the cubicle next door at work. So this is good news. Your neighbor, whether he's a Christian or not, is religious. Inherently, innately, inevitably religious. They were created not only with the desire, but with the unceasing ability to worship. They are worshipers already. They simply have their worship directed to the wrong end. But God is in the business of redirecting worship to himself. So take heart. Now, how many religions are there? I was reading an an article the other day about how the U.S. military had recently uh, doubled the number of recognized religions uh, for servicemen from 100 to 221 and, uh, and so I was reading over the, name of, uh, the names of all 221 of these recognized uh, religions. And some of my favorite names were the Church of the Spiral Tree, the Ohio Yearly Meeting of Friends, the Kansas Yearly Meeting of Friends. I was really disappointed that there was no Texas Yearly Meeting of Friends, uh, especially since the word Texas means friendship. Druid, Wicca, and maybe my favorite of all of the names. I have no idea what this is. I didn't even look it up, but it's called Troth which sounds like a character from Dungeons and Dragons. I'll have to ask Carl or Tim as our resident D&D experts. Even pagan and heathen are now recognized religious orientations in the U.S. military. So the U.S. military recognizes over 200, but even that pales in comparison to an exhaustive list of all world religions. Obviously, creating such a list can be hard since there are no hard and fast rules on what constitutes a distinct religion. It's hard to define, but some say that there are around 4,000. Others say that there's up to 10,000 religions. How many could you name? Think about it right now. How, How many of those could you actually name? I'm willing to guess that unless you, you've extensively studied world religions, you'd probably get no more than maybe 10, maybe 15, unless you just happen to remember all the spiral tree troth stuff I just said. Obviously, most of us would get, I think, about seven. Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormon. And here's where I think I would imagine that we start to slow down or just kind of mumble Maybe you would mumble out, "Eh, I've heard of something called Baha'i or Confucianism or Taoism or Shinto or Zoroastrianism, but there are still like 9,980 others according to some estimates. This is not even including all the satirical religions like uh, not only Rastafarianism, but Pastafarianism, which is the church of the flying spaghetti monster. That's a formally recognized religion in New Zealand and the Netherlands as is Jediism. Yes, Star Wars fans created their own religion 
so that they could still go to church while staying home and playing video games in their parents' basement. So Pastafarianism, Jediism, all these satirical uh, religions. Remember that whole, there's no scholarly consensus over what precisely constitutes a religion? Well, that's a problem. Anyone can just make up a religion and get a handful, at least a handful of people to jump on board. So how in the world can we possibly talk about general principles of world religions when there are so many and even new ones all the time? Well, I think one way that would be helpful, one way to kind of simplify the study of religions in general is to categorize them. So I wanna suggest four broad categories into which every religion fits. And then I wanna further reduce those categories from four down to two. But let's start with four. Here are the four categories. Number one, there are religions that say that everything is God. This is called pantheism. Number two, religions that say that there are many gods, polytheism. Number three, religions that say that there is one God, monotheism. And number four, religions that say that there is no God, atheism. So religions that say that everything is uh, is God. That's pantheism from the Greek word pan, and uh, obviously theism from theos, which means God. This would be things like New Age spirituality, animism, Wicca, and so forth. Shinto in Japan, Some forms are um, uh, pantheistic, some are polytheistic, but that's pantheism. Then you have polytheism, religions that say that there are many gods, poly meaning uh, many, as in a polygamist has many wives. This would be like Hinduism, some forms of of Buddhism, though others might be considered uh, atheistic. It also uh, includes religions which are called henotheistic. Hino meaning one. Henotheism is when you recognize many gods, but you worship one in particular as the supreme god. So think of ancient Greece. With their, they have a pantheon of gods, but one particular god would be worshipped in each city or whatever as kind of the ultimate god, the, the ruler among all the other gods. Many of the so-called Christian cults are actually polytheistic, with the goal being that we ourselves become gods. We'll, we'll talk in particular about some of the cults in, uh, in a few weeks. So you have pantheism, everything is God, polytheism, there are many gods, uh, and then monotheism, which are religions that say that there is one God. This would be ancient and modern Judaism. Uh, this would be Islam, and then obviously Christianity. And then you have religions that say that there is no God, atheism. The letter A serves as what's called an alpha privative to negate the word as an apathy or asymptomatic or something like that. This would include things like Marxism, secular humanism, uh, some forms of Buddhism, obviously anyone who called themselves uh, an atheist. Uh, uh, So that's four different categories of religion. Pantheism, polytheism, monotheism, and uh, atheism. And when we think about it in these terms, the options begin to drastically sort of clarify from 10,000 different religions, really to four different types of religions with uh, different sort of manifestations within each. But let's reduce it uh, down even a bit more from four down to two. From our perspective, from a biblical perspective, from a biblical worldview, there are really only two categories of religion. You have Christianity and then you have everything else. If you think about the gospel as the story of a king and his kingdom, and you should, by the way, that's how you should think of the gospel because that's what the gospel is, the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
But if you think about the gospel through this lens, this kingdom lens, then you have a king, King Jesus, and you have his kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom to come. But you also have a rival kingdom, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, etc. And you have a ruler of that kingdom who is Satan. He's called the ruler of this world. And here's the deal. This, this ruler, this false god, Satan, the enemy, he doesn't care if you're a pantheist or a polytheist or an atheist. Or you're even a monotheist who worships some God other than Yahweh the, tri- Yahweh, the triune God of the Bible. It isn't like Satan is only pleased if you wear a robe with a pentagram chanting hell Satan over your Ouija board. He's pleased with every single other religion other than Christianity. It's like going to a casino and playing roulette and betting on red 22. The house doesn't care if it falls on black 23 or red 24 or a black nine or the green space. It wins if it falls on anything other than red 22. That's like Satan and his kingdom. He wins if you worship anyone or anything other than King Jesus. He doesn't care. So really, world religion can be boiled down to Christianity and everything else. So let's talk about what makes Christianity distinct uh, among all the other religions of the world. But first, I wanna clarify Uh, that Christianity is indeed a religion. For some reason, uh, lots of Christians don't like that word. There's a whole cliche uh, phrase that says, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. Religion is man's attempt to reach God. Christianity is God's attempt to reach man. Therefore, Christianity is not a religion. Now, I've heard some super godly believers uh, say that, and I can sympathize with what they mean by that, but it's actually a really silly thing to say. Let me tell you why I don't like it, and I would discourage you from saying something like that. Three reasons, and then a fourth bonus reason. First reason, because that phrase misuses and redefines words. Religion is a hard word to define, but no one defines it as man's attempt to reach God as opposed to to God's attempt to reach man. Last week, we talked about logical fallacies. And one of the ones we talked about was equivocation, which is when you use a word in two different ways within the same context. This is an equivocation on the meaning of the word religion. If you have to change the meaning of a word to make your case, you're in trouble. It would be like me saying, you know, Zach's not really a man because he hates camping and men really love to camp. That's absurd. I love to camp. Many other guys do too, but that's not what the word man actually means. That's not the definition of the word. According to just about every actually recognized definition of religion, Christianity fits. Number two, though the Bible does use the word religion at times in negative ways, it also uses it in positive ways. For example, James talks about pure and undefiled religion. So it seems like that phrase discards the way that God himself sometimes uses the word religion. If you want to say that you're not religious, then you're saying you're not fulfilling what God calls you to do in the book of James. Number three, the rest of church history has been absolutely fine with the word religion to describe Christianity. For example, two of my theological heroes use the term in very positive ways. What's the name of Calvin's sort of magnum opus? What's called institutes. Institutes of what? Institutes of the Christian religion. And one of the greatest works by Jonathan Edwards was called Religious Affections. 
We also see the word used of Christianity in the Westminster Confession and London Baptist Confession of 1689 and Augsburg and just about every other Reformed Confession. So the surrounding culture sur- uh, understands the word religion in a way that would overlap with Christianity. The Bible itself uses the term in a way that would describe our faith. And the rest of church history is fine with the word. So I don't know why we wouldn't be. Bonus reason. This is just a, an aside. It seems to me if you're going to say that Christianity isn't a religion, then you shouldn't talk about freedom of religion. And you should be totally fine if the government wants to take away your rights. You kind of back yourself into a corner if what you say is your religion isn't actually a religion. Now, that said, I'm sympathetic to the reason that people say it. Christianity isn't lifeless. It isn't dull routine like some other religions. Christianity is distinct among the world religions. Jesus is distinct among the gods. Uh, We're going to talk about that shortly, but, but we shouldn't resort to logical fallacies and trite, nonsensical plays on words to make those points, especially because doing so makes us seem either ignorant We don't really know what the word means or it makes us seem really arrogant, neither of which are helpful for our evangelism. That said, there are a number of things that that do distinguish Christianity from all the other religions of the world. What are those things? Let me give you just four. I probably could give you 12 or 15 or 20 or something like that, but just four different things that distinguish Christianity from every other religion Number one is the emphasis on objective and verifiable historical facts. We've talked about this a number of times before. Islam rises or falls on the visions that Muhammad received, but he received those in private. According to uh, Islamic tradition, he was in a cave, actually, whenever he began to receive these visions. Mormonism rises or falls on the visions of Joseph Smith and golden plates that no one else has ever seen. Buddhism is based on the non-verifiable, non-public experiences of Buddha. All of these are subjective. Only Christianity is grounded in objective, verifiable facts centered on an actual person and actual historical events. In fact, in many religions, history is actually irrelevant to that tradition. It doesn't matter if Thor is a legend or not. It doesn't matter if Zeus is real or not. That's not the case for Christianity. Christianity stands or falls on the basis of historical events, the most compelling being the resurrection. We've talked about that uh, before, the centrality of the resurrection in regards to apologetics. We talked about that earlier this semester, in fact. If Christ isn't raised, then Christianity is of no value whatsoever. But if he is raised from the dead, then Christianity is of infinite and inestimable value. So that's the first one. The second thing that distinguishes Christianity from all other religions is the Trinity, Trinitarianism. No other religions teaches, no other religion teaches that God is triune. Some religions are, as we said before, pantheistic. Some are polytheistic. Some are atheistic. Some are even monotheistic but none are monotheistic in the way that Christianity is that is Trinitarian. Even the Christian cults, the so-called Christian cults, uh, all deny the Trinity, which is why Trinitarianism is the first litmus test for orthodoxy. A third thing that distinguishes Christianity from other religions is what do you do with Jesus? Is he man? Is he God? Is he a good teacher? Who is Jesus? What is Jesus? This is the central question, in fact, in all of history. 
What do you do with Jesus? Of all the influential religious leaders of the world, Buddha, Moses, Krishna, Muhammad, Joseph Smith, only Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh and was risen from the dead as a, as a, a verification of that claim. Which is why apologists have long said that you can either say that Jesus is a legend, which even the most secular scholars will say is absurd, or he's a liar or a lunatic, which, even, which seems completely implausible based on the depictions of him we see in scripture. So if he's not a legend, he's not a liar, he's not a lunatic, what is he? He's actually Lord. So who is Jesus? Is he a man, a good man, or is he God in the flesh? And then lastly, uh, what distinguishes Christianity from all other religions is the centrality of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone. In Islam, in the cults, in Eastern religions, even in secular humanism, your understanding of redemption or salvation comes about through something you do or you don't do. Do these works to please Allah or to get more virgins in heaven or to experience nirvana or whatever it might be. Only in Christianity do you truly have a God of love and grace and the hope of salvation by grace alone through faith alone and thus the possibility of assurance of salvation. In just about every other religion, there can be no certainty or assurance. We've been talking about that a lot in 1 John. So let me sum up some of these inherent differences by a series of contrasts. All other religions say, if I obey, obey, God will love me versus what's at the heart of Christianity, which is because God loves me, I can obey. All other religions tend to distinguish between good people and bad people versus in Christianity where the distinction isn't good people and bad people, but bad people in Jesus. And so all humanity is not described as either being good or bad, but rather repentant and unrepentant. All other religions depend on what I do versus in Christianity, it's all dependent upon what Jesus has done. In other religions, sanctification justifies me versus in Christianity where justification enables my sanctification. All other religions are about me as the individual worship versus Christianity, which is actually about Jesus and the triune God. In all other religions, God is the means. He's the means to get you some desired end. Versus in Christianity, God himself is the end. The good news of the gospel is that you get God. Finally, as a consequence of all the above, all other religions inevitably end in pride or despair. Pride if you actually accomplish what you're setting out to accomplish. Despair if you don't. Versus Christianity, which culminates and consummates not in pride or despair, but in humble joy. So as we spend the next two months discussing various world religions, here are some of the fundamental questions that you'll need to keep in mind. What does this particular religion believe about God? What does this particular religion believe about man? What does this particular religion, uh, I keep saying religion, what does this particular religion believe is wrong with the world? What does this religion believe has been done or will be done or should be done to make it right? And then lastly, what does this religion believe is the source for knowing such things? What does it believe is the source for knowing 
the source or authority for knowing such things. As mentioned before, the reason that we need to know these things is twofold. First, so that we're better equipped to present a, a defense, an apology, uh, which is what uh, the word apologetics refers to, a defense against the claims of other religions, secular humanism, the cults, whatever it might be. But second, the reason is that we should know these things is so that we can actually love our neighbors by presenting the gospel to them in language and concepts that they can understand. We want to find bridges from each culture and each religious tradition uh, and use that to build a bridge to the truths of the gospel. So as we conclude, I want to go back to where we began, back to Athens, back to Acts 17. Paul's just delivered this sermon on the Areopagus. And then the text says in verses 32 through 34, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So you see there are three different responses to the gospel. What are those three responses? Well, some mock some mock Paul, some mock his gospel, especially this silly idea of a resurrection, which to the Greek mindset would have been the last thing they would have believed in. So some mock Paul and his gospel. Others aren't convinced, but they're at least interested. They're engaged. They said, we'll hear you again about this. They're not persuaded, but they're at least interested. And still others are persuaded. They're compelled and they're converted. Here's my point. 2,000 years later, nothing has changed. Those are the exact same responses we see to the gospel today. When we share the gospel, people of whatever their world religion, whatever their worldview, whatever their presuppositions, whatever their assumptions, uh, whatever it might be, they will have one of three responses. Some will mock you. Others won't be convinced, but they'll at least be spiritually interested but still others will be persuaded by the work of the Spirit of God and will be converted. So may we in humility and expectation and a hope do our best to share the gospel with all in the hopes that God will save some. We'll look at uh, each of those individual world religions in the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are a God who has revealed yourself. Even as we talked about when we talked about pluralism with the story of the, uh, the elephant and the blind men, they're all groping about trying to figure out whether the elephant is a wall or a trunk or a rope or a snake or whatever it might be. Lord, that what's distinctive about Christianity is in it you speak. We don't have to grope about blindly and try to figure out our way to you that you have revealed yourself to us in your son and by your spirit and through your word. And so I pray that you would help us and that you would use uh, these uh, next couple of months of teachings on various world religions, not so that we would grow arrogant uh, and conceited, but the exact opposite, that we would be humble and grateful and that it might equip us to live our lives missionally for your glory and for the joy of all people. We pray these things because you're good 
and you do good, and we trust that there are many others in McKinney that you would desire to draw into your kingdom. And so you, we pray that you would help us to that end. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.